Good morning, everyone. Matthew, don't be too vocal. Um, Matthew is my younger brother, and because I was nicknamed Burry at school, they called him Burger. So I thought that was super original. You're welcome to call him Burger as well. Um, good morning to everyone. I'm really pumped to carry on the series this morning. We really are a thinned out crowd, but that's cool. Um, last week, Grant embarked on the first installment of our series, and uh, he looked through at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. And I'm going to be looking this morning at Matthew chapter 1, verses 6 to 17. So if you've got your Bibles or tablets or phones, please don't you turn there with me. I'm going to ask Amy to kindly put it up on the screen, and then uh, we'll go through it together. Wow, that's really small. Can everybody read that? If you've got really bad eyesight, you're welcome to come and sit up here in the front with me. Um, but I'm going to leave that up throughout the whole preach, so you can kind of read it and, and kind of come to terms with it. And um, when Grant told me about what our series would be about, he said, no, we're going to go through the genealogy of Jesus, we're going to go through Matthew chapter 1. I was a little bit apprehensive as to why you'd want to do this for our Christmas series. It's a very strange topic to be going through. I'm sure when you guys think of a Christmas series, you're thinking about the nativity scene. You're thinking about um, Mary and Joseph riding on the camel, uh, camel, riding on the back of a donkey through to Bethlehem. Um, you're thinking about a humble beginning of Jesus being born in a manger, surrounded by animals. You're thinking about shepherds. You're thinking about a star that led the wise men to find out where the new king was going to be born. You're thinking about some goats, some sheep. And um, that story really makes us feel good about Christmas. It's something we all know. It's something that we've grown up hearing about. I'm sure some of us would have even been a Joseph or a Mary or a shepherd in a play. Anybody out there? Yes? Maybe if you weren't a good-looking kid, maybe you were a sheep or a goat in the background. <laughs> that was Shane. But um, yeah, it's really, that's the scene that we kind of associate with Christmas. That's the Christmas scene for us as people because it's something that we're so familiar with. And this series is really different. It's so completely different to the Christmas idea that we've all heard before. And um, I really want to go through this passage of Scripture. And it's, it, it, from the outset, it looks like a, a whole bunch of verses with a random list of people's names. These are really the lists of names that we jump through when we read the Bible. I know I do. I find them incredibly boring because they're just random people. This is really a list of old dead guys who lived. And um, they are just a whole bunch of random people who got their names into the Bible. So it's a random series, but it's a series that I'm really keen to get into this morning. And it's a series that I was really excited to, to actually understand and study as I've been looking over it the past couple of weeks. Because this is not just a bunch of names. This is a bunch of names of people who were real, who went down in history for something that they did, who were actually the ancestors of Jesus. They were Jesus' forefathers. These were guys who had relationships with God. These were guys who ruled the nation. They had incredible influence. And we're going to go through a couple of these guys this morning and really unpack their story of how God used them and what he did with them. Or even how some of them actually completely turned their back against God. And I just really think it's cool to understand the context in which they live and understand a little bit more about them as individuals. So, let's jump right into it. Matthew 1, verses 6 to 17. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil, and Sheatil the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliazar, and Eliazar the father 
of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I feel like a bit of a rapper, a little bit of an auctioneer. I probably read that thing 20 to 30 times in preparing for this morning, so I didn't get any of their names wrong. I probably did. But the um, first person I'd love to have a look at is King Solomon, right at the top. So King Solomon was a, a guy who took over the kingship after David died, and he was born out of an adulterous relationship between David and a, guy called, and a lady called Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife. So Solomon was a child of an, of an adulterous relationship. And Solomon was anointed as king in 1 Kings 1. And he really didn't know what to do. He didn't understand how to lead a nation. He didn't understand how he could become a king. He's never done it before. So in 1 Kings 3, we see this incredible story of him crying out to God for wisdom on how to lead the nation of Israel and how to lead God's people because he didn't know what to do. And he asked God for wisdom and understanding and how to rule the nation. And God was so pleased with this. God was so pleased that Solomon didn't ask him for riches, that Solomon didn't ask him to go and destroy his enemies, that Solomon didn't ask him that he would live a long life. That God says to him, I'm going to give you the wisdom that you asked for, and I'm going to give you riches and honor and glory, because they go with that. So God gave him this incredible thing, and he asked him to follow his commandments and to lead the nation of Israel. And Solomon is most famous for his wisdom. Solomon was really a God who, sorry, was a man who had a God-given wisdom. And one of his most famous wise decisions was when two ladies approached him, and they both lived in a house, just the two of them, and each of them had a child. And one of the ladies during the night lay, rolled over onto her baby and the baby died. And in the middle of the night, she found out that she had killed her baby and she got up and she went into the other lady's room and she swapped the babies and she took the other lady's baby back into her bed. And in the morning, the mother whose baby was actually alive but had been taken recognized that the other lady had stolen her baby. And they were bickering about this and arguing about it so much so that they caused a row that people took them through to the king's court so that he could sort out their problem. And while they were bickering in front of King Solomon, King Solomon said, okay, cool, can somebody please bring me a sword? Because I'm going to cut this baby in half so that they can each have a baby. And the, the one woman starts screaming out, saying, please don't touch him, please don't touch him. Give him to her, it's okay. Rather, leave him alone. And the other lady who had stolen the baby had said, well, actually, if we can't each have a baby, then yeah, let's each have half. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that the lady who had compassion on the baby and didn't want any harm to come to him was actually the true mother of the baby. This was incredible wisdom shown as Solomon sorted out the situation and he understood who the actual mother was and reunited her with her baby. My favorite part about this story in Solomon's incredible wisdom is 1 Kings 3 verses 28. And it says this, And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they had perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. The whole nation of Israel heard about this story. The whole nation of Israel understood that it wasn't a man who made this decision. But actually it was a man with the anointing of God, with God's wisdom, that would sort out the situation. The whole nation understood that their king was with God. That their king was clothed in godly wisdom. And I absolutely love that. That actually the whole nation would hear that their king, their leader, the ruler of their nation is is a king who is with God. And Solomon was so much more than just a wise man. He was a poet. He was a songwriter. He contributed much towards um, the Proverbs that we read in the Bible. 
He was so wise that he also attracted many people from all around the area to come and listen to how incredibly wise he was. But Solomon was also a man of incredible wealth and he lived a life of luxury. He was an eccentric man. He was a man who did things really over the top. And he was a man who took on the rebuilding of God's temple. And he did so in an incredible fashion. And you can read through it in 1 Kings as he details the different finishes of the marble inlays that he put into God's temple, of the gold-layered things and all the different woods that he constructed in God's temple to make it what it was. So he was a king who was super famous and he was a king who was unnecessarily and incredibly rich. So from the outset, he looks like a great leader. From the outset, he looks like a man who was leading the nation of Israel really well. But Solomon was not perfect. In his dealings and trying to find the gold and the marble and the different types of woods that he would put into the temple, Solomon actually negotiated with surrounding kings of other areas to give people from his nation over as slave labor to them. And he was a man who was also incredibly full of lust and something that he couldn't control. And God had given the Israelites a decree and had given them a commandment. And he said, do not marry foreign women because they're going to turn your hearts away from me. And Solomon disobeyed God directly. And he didn't only marry one woman because he could not control his lust. He married 700 foreign women. And on the side of those 700 wives, he had 300 concubines. This is a man who's got a thousand women in his palace. And Solomon was a king who, although led his nation extremely well, he was also a man who took his eyes off of God and he looked to the things around him. He actually took his eyes away from God and he looked at the material things that were around him. He looked to his wives, he looked to his wealth. So much so that actually he began to build temples to the gods of the foreign wives that he had. And Solomon was a man who did incredible things with God, he did incredible things for God, but he was also a man who was lured away from God by all the wives in his life. And instead of pursuing God, he pursued the things that he could see, touch and feel around him. So that's that first name, King Solomon. And what, who have we got next? We've got Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. And when Solomon died, Rehoboam became king. And it was a massive kind of days of your lives moment as God had actually asked one of Solomon's generals to lead the nation, to become king of Israel. And Rehoboam was a vain and foolish man. And in his anger, in a conversation with one of Solomon's generals, Solomon's generals asked him not to tax the people so heavily so that he as a king would live such a lavish life. And in response, he said this. He said, My father laid on you a heavy yoke, and I will make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips, and I will scourge you with scorpions. So he was a man who was completely arrogant, and in his anger said these things. And as a result of Rehoboam's harshness, the, the, the nation of Israel actually split in two. Ten, ten tribes of Israel went with Solomon's general and only two tribes stayed with Rehoboam. He was a man who was full of his own desires and in a moment of anger caused the whole nation and God's chosen people to be split into two. So from where Rehoboam ruled, the nation of Israel became the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel. And the genealogy of Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, or the two tribes that split out from the other ten. Are you with me? Okay, that's where we are. I really didn't want this morning to be a boring history lesson, but uh, really that we would just look at people and understand the context of their lives and understand the context of who these names are in the list of the genealogy of Jesus. So the next guy on our list is a guy called Asaph. I'm going to skip over Abijah. Or it says Asa in this one. Awesome. This is the NIV version. 
guy called Asaph. He was uh, the third king of Judah. And uh, I've really got a short paragraph here. But during his 41-year reign, he was a guy who really stirred up revival in the nation of Judah. He turned people back to God. He turned people to worship their king. He lifted the whole nation's heads and he caused them to come into an incredible relationship with God for 41 years. All he did was stir up revival and he removed all the pagan gods and idols that were in the nation of Judah. The next guy we've got on our list is a guy called Jehoshaphat. I'm sure you've all heard the saying, jumping Jehoshaphat. It's not from this guy. Jehoshaphat is Asaph's son, or Asa's son. He's probably my favorite king in the story. Um, he's another great king of Judah, and he kind of came into the throne at the time of, of war, surrounding the conclusion of his father's reign. So there was a period in Jehoshaphat's reign where there were effectively three nations that surrounded the nation of Judah. And they all got together and they conspired to exterminate the nation of Judah. They wanted to come together. They formed a vast army that greatly outnumbered the nation of Judah. And they wanted to come together and completely defeat Jehoshaphat's kingdom. They wanted to wipe them out completely. And it was in this kind of crisis that Jehoshaphat calls upon God. And he doesn't look to his own army. He doesn't look to the defensive walls. He doesn't look to himself and his advisors to kind of work out how he's going to get out of this crisis. He doesn't sit there and think, well, how am I going to best defeat these people? Actually, what he does is he calls the entire nation of Judah to come together into Jerusalem for a day of prayer and fasting. I think that's an incredible moment. And he's, as he says, I'm actually not going to look to the things of the earth. Jesus, we're going to look to God. We're going to look to you to come and redeem this story. An incredible moment of crisis where he doesn't know what to do. He calls the entire nation into the city of Jerusalem and they begin praying and fasting together. While he was doing so, he sent out a couple of scouts. He sent them out to go and see how many people there were. And they came back with a report that they were vastly outnumbered, that there was no hope of them winning the battle. And the king himself prayed an incredibly beautiful prayer as he, displayed, as he cried out to God and he said, God, you are mighty. He reminded God of, of the history that they've had with their people. He reminded God of his promise to them as a nation. And they cried out to God in his helplessness. And right at the end of his prayer, he says this. He says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. As a king leading a nation in an extremely helpless situation, about to get completely wiped out by three other surrounding nations with a vast army, he cries out to God saying, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He takes the whole nation together and he lifts their eyes and they cry out to God. And as they're waiting around, the Lord speaks through a prophet to them and he instructs that the army is going to march against this vast number of people, but the Lord is going to win the battle. He said, not one of your soldiers is going to need to lift a sword, but you're going to be victorious. And in great relief, the whole nation of Judah comes together and they celebrate and they worship God. So early the next morning, King Jehoshaphat assembles his army. He gets them all ready and they're going to march out to the battlefield. And instead of the, the custom of the day when he would send out his bravest and his best fighters to lead the procession to the battlefield, he put the temple choir in the front of the army. And they led the procession towards the battlefield singing praises to God. Because they knew that they would not have to fight. And as they were walking towards the battlefield, they were worshipping God the three other nations of this vast army started to fight amongst themselves. They heard the singing in the background coming from the distance and they began bickering amongst themselves as to what was going on. And this bickering led to fighting and they began, began killing each other. And the nation of Judah arrived with the temple, 
temple choir leading the procession to the battlefield and they line up on the battlefield and they realize that there's not one person alive on the battlefield. An incredible moment as God has actually won the victory and all they've done is step out in faith. They've led this procession worshiping and praising him and they arrive at the battlefield and there's not one person alive and a great number of people who came to attack them and wipe them out. God's grace was on the nation of Judah. God's grace was on King Jehoshaphat, who in a time of helplessness turned his eyes towards heaven and said, God, God, our eyes are on you. What can you do? Because we are helpless. And God comes through in an incredible and mighty way. And just to display how vast the number of people of the other army were, he organized his troops to go and collect all of their armor and go and collect all of their gold and all of their plunder. And it took his nation three days to go and collect all of that stuff. How many other soldiers were there in that army that were coming to defeat them? That it would take his whole nation three days to collect all of their stuff and take it back to their city. So after the battle, there was an incredible celebration as Jesus, as the, the nation of Judah praised God for what he had done, of the victory that he had won, the fact that they never had to raise a sword, the fact that not one of their people was killed. Because Jehoshaphat stepped out in faith and he cried out to God in a moment of helplessness. I love that story. I love this display of faith as a king actually leads his nation and he leads them to God and he points their eyes heavenward. And stories like these that really encourage me as a person and it really kind of takes doubt of my mind when I don't think that God is there and God isn't with me. It's stories like this that remind me that God is a God who is alive, that God is real with people and he deals and intervenes in the most incredible way into our lives. The next guy we've got on our list is a guy called Jehoram or Joram. And he was the successor of this incredible godly king Jehoshaphat. He grew up watching his dad lead the nation in the most incredible victory. He grew up watching his dad step out in faith, never lifting a sword, and God wiping out an entire three nations who came to defeat them. He saw this with his very own eyes. But he went down in history as one of Judah's most wicked kings. He did literally the opposite of what his dad had done. During his eight years of reign, he completely abandoned God. He ruled very sinfully. He was committed to sin. He was committed to idolatry. He even murdered his brothers who tried to stop him in his reign. And as a result of all of this, Elijah the prophet sends him a letter that states that the Lord is going to blow a heavy strike against your family and you're going to be very diseased and in pain before you die. And King Jehoram or Joram completely ignores this letter from the prophets and they get invaded by a couple of enemies. People get into the palace, they wipe out his family, except for one son who makes an escape. And King Joram contracted a fatal disease that would cause him to lie in pain for two years before he died. It's completely opposite to the story of King Jehoshaphat. The next thing I'd like to look at is a guy called Uzziah. Uzziah was very faithful to God. He was the man who looked to God for everything in his reign, who looked to, to God for his rule, and he really started restoring the nation of Judah. He restored it back to the strength and influence that the nation of Israel had in the time of Solomon and David's reign. He was a man who was incredibly inventive and a man who was incredibly strategic. And he went throughout the nation of Judah and he built up a whole bunch of um, military outposts where he constructed crossbows and catapults so they could defend themselves. He also invested into the agriculture and he dug wells in the land and he went throughout the land of Judah building vineyards so that they could be sustainable. And he built the nation of Judah up to a place where it was sustainable and had the strength and influence of Israel back in King Solomon's days. 
And unfortunately, at the end of his 52-year reign, he kind of looked to himself and he was very proud of what he had achieved while he was king. He became very full of himself and he went into an area in the temple that only priests were allowed to go. And the priests arrived and they said, King Uzziah, please, you need to leave. We are the only ones who are allowed to be here by order of God. And he became outraged that they would challenge him as their king. And as a result, God afflicted him with leprosy. In an instant, while he was standing in the temple, challenging the priests about his decision, he was full of leprosy. So much so that he was visibly unclean in that moment. And the chief priests chased him out of the temple. And he was so ashamed of what he did, he left the temple and he left Jerusalem never to be seen again. Even over the 52 years as he had ruled and he had honored God in everything, because of that one moment of weakness, he ran away and he was embarrassed. So his son steps up to the plate. The next guy on our list is King Jotham. Because of his dad's leprosy and because of his dad running away, he had to step up. So he, he took the throne and he did exactly what his father had done. He carried on digging wells, investing in agriculture. He turned the nation towards God and he was a man after God's own heart. He lived a steady life. He lived a stable life and he led the nation well. And he had a son called Ahaz, who's the next guy on our list. King Ahaz devoted himself to pagan worship. He completely disregarded everything that his father and his grandfather had built. He went around, instead of building military outposts and investing in agriculture and digging wells, he actually went around the nation and he built temples to idols. So much so that he actually sacrificed his own sons and burning them alive to, as in a ritual to one of the idols. And as a result of his infidelity, God sends a plague that would effectively wipe out the empire that had been built by his father and his grandfather. So they were raided by nation after nation after nation. And the nation of Judah began to crumble once again. And once he died, King Hezekiah took the throne. Now he was a man who understood what his father had done, understood his father's decisions, understood that his father had completely turned his back on God and invested his time in celebrating and worshipping pagan gods. And he understood that as a result of that, that God had actually left the nation of Judah to come into ruin. So he began to restore it. He began to call the people back to God. He called the nation of Judah back to God. He went around the country sweeping the nation with religious reforms and asking people to come to the temple and worship the king. And he brought the nation of Judah back to an empire that it once was. While, while he was still king, during the end of his reign, he, began, he became deathly ill. And he cried out to God to heal him. And God came in a miraculous moment and healed him once again. So for 15 years on, he still ruled. And right at the end of his 15 years, he, he himself was full of pride at what he had done to reestablish the nation of Judah. And during that last 15 years, he became a father to a son called Manasseh. And Manasseh was a, a man of extreme evil. And he's the next guy on our list. Manasseh came to the throne at only 12 years of age once his father had passed away. And although Hezekiah had made it his mission to reestablish Judah as a nation of strength and influence, his son Manasseh had actually gone to literally destroy everything that his father had built. And while Hezekiah had gone through the nation of Judah, taking down all of the idols that previous kings had built, taking down all the pagan worship temples that other guys had built, Manasseh literally went to those sites that had been in ruin of those temples of idols and he rebuilt them. 
He dedicated his life to idolatry and pagan worship again. He was also a guy who sacrificed his sons to the same idol and burnt them alive. He was a guy who murdered so many people that historians say that the city of Jerusalem would have been filled with blood from one end to the other because of the innocent lives that he killed. They called him one of the most evil kings that had ever ruled. And God sent prophets to tell him that there would be a disaster that would come over the people of Judah as a result of his great sins. And late in his 55-year reign over the nation of Judah, Assyria came and took over the city of Jerusalem and they captured the king Manasseh and they took him a thousand miles away and imprisoned him. And this man who had killed hundreds of innocent people, who had killed his sons, who had reestablished temples to pagan idols, was sitting in a prison cell completely helpless. And he remembered what his, what his father had said and what his father had done. And that his father loved God. And in a powerless moment, in a, in, a, in a place of understanding who God was, he began to pray and ask God for the forgiveness of his sins. And ask God for help. And God in his grace, even though this man had murdered hundreds of people, heard his prayers and set him free. And he reestablished King Manasseh on his throne. He took him back a thousand miles to the city of Jerusalem and he reestablished him on his throne. I think it's an incredible story of this man who dedicated his life to undoing everything good that his father had done and establishing temples for idols, who killing tons and tons of people, cries out to God and God restores him back to the, to the king of Judah. And it wasn't a moment of conversion that he left behind and then carried on his evil ways. It was actually a miraculous conversion. And he lived a life dedicated to God. He went back to all those temples that he'd reestablished and he wiped them out again. And he called people back to the temple of God. I think it's an incredible story. And after King Manasseh, we see the city of, uh, of Judah had one or two other kings. And they were actually overrun. And the city of Judah and the nation of Judah began to crumble. And all of the people of Judah were taken into the city of Babylon. As we read about there, it says, Jeconiah was the, um, sorry, just before that, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So all of these people were taken into the city of Babylon. And from then on, the historians and the Bible actually doesn't speak a lot about the rest of the names on the screen. The only name that actually stands out is this guy right in the corner here called Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a man who took the nation, or took a couple of people from the nation of Judah back to Jerusalem and he began to rebuild the temple. He was a man who constructed the altar. He was a man who rebuilt the temple. And they called it the second temple. It was much inferior to the beauty of the temple that Solomon had built. But it was a man, he was a man who led the Judeans back into the city of Jerusalem. I really feel like I have been giving a history lesson as we've been looking at random names. But I hope that we're starting to contextualize and understand that it's not just a people, person's name, but actually each of these people has got a story. That each of these people has got a history. That each of these people had a relationship with God. Because names in the Bible are actually so much more than just names. The, the Jews used to use it to establish a timeline of what happened in history. And just like we know the previous presidents of our country, they would recognize the kings of their nation. They would recognize what those kings had done in their time. And unfortunately nowadays we lose that context when we read through this list of names. But I love that each of these guys is so different. They're so different in their views. They're so different on their relationship with God. We've got Solomon, who was a man of God, but falls away. I'm just going to do a quick recap of that list. We've got Rehoboam, who completely rejects God. He splits the nation of, of Israel in two. 
We chatted about Asaph, who was a man who um, stirred revival in the nation. We've got Jehoshaphat, who was a man full of faith and who heard God. Then we've got his son, Joram, who was one of the most evil kings in the history of Judah. Then we've got King Uzziah, who restored Judah to his formal self, and he worshipped God. And his son, Jotham, continued in the same vein. Then we've got King Ahaz, who completely turned the nation of Judah back to pagan ways. And he killed his sons and destroyed the empire that his father and his grandfather had rebuilt. Then we've got King Hezekiah, who turned the nation around once again when he was king. And we've got his evil son, Manasseh, who completely set out to undo everything that his father had rebuilt, but who had the most radical conversion. And that's kind of a recap of that first list of names. And I think as we read through and we understand who these people are, we understand their history, we understand a little bit of their story, what stands out to me the most is this pattern of these kings and their sons turning away from God. And then their sons turning back to God. And I think it's so symbolic of how we as Christians can actually do that in our own lives. And we sit here and we judge these things and we go, how can you turn away from God when you've seen how much he's prospered your father and how he led the nation? And we read through and we literally look at and we say, how can you do that? You just saw that God reestablished your nation. We just saw that God wiped out three armies because he was the one who won the battle. You didn't have to lift a sword. But literally the guy who watched this battle or this whole thing unveil in his own eyes was the one who turned away from God, who completely forgot what God had done. And we can be exactly like these kings of Judah. We can be exactly like the men in the story. In our own lives, we can so easily forget what God has done to intervene in our lives. We can so easily forget those moments when heaven and earth collided and God met and intervened into our own story. We can be fish in a sense because we can so quickly forget what God has done in our lives. And we sit and we judge these guys, but actually if we have a look at our own lives, how many times have we turned away from God? How many times have we forgot those moments, those significant God moments in our life where God intervened and did something incredible and real for us? I think what I love about the story is there's absolutely nothing consistent. Everything is different. Every single king is different in how he rules. The only thing consistent throughout the story is that God was there the entire time. That God was there, he was waiting. That God was waiting to do something. God was waiting to have a relationship with them. God was waiting to extend his incredible grace to them. That it didn't matter if their, their father had turned their back on God, but as soon as the son came into rule and reign of the nation, actually God was there saying, okay, come, let's establish this kingdom once again. And we see it so established in, in the, the story of Manasseh, when he is the guy who killed hundreds of people, but actually in a place when he was sitting in prison, God completely forgave him of all of the evil things that he had done, because God was waiting, God was right there to reconnect with him. And we serve a God of incredible grace. And as we go through these these stories of the men who turned their back from God, God was the only thing that is consistent there. And God is the only thing that is consistent in our lives as well. As we can turn our back away from Him, He is there waiting to reconnect with us. One of the things that I love as we kind of see through the story and, and the history of Jesus' genealogy is that grace does not run in the bloodlines of men. And neither does sin. Because we can have a relationship with God and these guys' fathers can have a relationship with God and they can live a life of, of being in God's grace. But that doesn't necessarily extend to their son and, and what the nations that carried on from them. And sin also does not continue in our bloodlines. It, you can see that actually God was waiting and God intervened into relationships and God led the nation once again. And in the same way for us, 
Actually, if our fathers and mothers are Christians, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to go to heaven because grace does not continue through bloodlines. And just because our fathers and our mothers have sinned and done evil things, it doesn't mean that we have to live lives that are overshadowed and clouded by those sins of our forefathers. And we can see that in this story and we can reflect about it in our own lives. That actually God is a God who can intervene. That God is a God of grace and who can set us free. And although each and every single one of us is sinful by nature, we don't need to live under the cloud and shadow of our forefathers because God is a God of grace. What I love about this whole list of names is we can see that Jesus descends from this. And it says right up until the bottom, it says, The father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. And this is a list of extremely ordinary men and a list of extraordinary men. But we can see that Jesus was very much man because of this, this genealogy before him. And we can see that God did not care about the, the line of men before him because so often we can think, well, Jesus was the guy who lived the perfect life. Jesus must have been the guy with the perfect family. But actually, when we look at his family's history, we can see how full of baggage it was and we can see how rotten some of the men were because God didn't care about the past because God is a God of grace and God is a God who can intervene into our lives. And in verse 17, right at the end, it says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. And Matthew writes this in right at the end. He's saying, look at this genealogy. Remember what God has done. Remember the lives and the stories of these men. Remember everything. And then he just kind of sums it up. And what he's saying here is, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. And these were called the, the fathering generations. Abraham is the father of all nations. And he's summing it up and saying, these were all the men who were fathers of and fathers of and fathers of. And then he establishes the next part and he says, in 14 generations from David until the exile of Babylon, these were known as the king generations where all the different kings of Judah ruled. And then he's saying there were 14 generations from the exile of Babylon to the Christ. And these are the civilian generations once the, the kingdom of Judah had been completely demolished and these guys were taken into Babylon. They lived lives as civilians. And Matthew's summing this up and saying, actually, Jesus descends from a man who is a father. He descends from a, a royal lineage because he descends from the guys who were kings. And he is also a humble man because he descends from civilians. What I love about this summation as well is Matthew's reminding us that God is a faithful God and God, he's a God who fulfills promises. In Genesis 12, verse, verse 3, it's God speaking to Abraham and he promises him something. He says, In you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, it says, God made a covenant with David, saying, And your house will, and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne should be established forever. So God made two promises. One to Abraham, saying, Actually, you're going to bless all nations. And he's saying, One promise to David, he's saying, Actually, you are going to rule forever and your, your lineage will rule forever. And we see God fulfill that promise in this when he says, well, actually, Jesus is descended from Abraham. And through Jesus, every, the whole earth is going to be blessed. So Abraham, the promise to Abraham was fulfilled. And we see God saying to David, well, you're going to rule forever. And Jesus is going to be king forever. And Jesus came from you. So God fulfills his promise in that. And we look at this list of names and we, we, we often skip over it. But as we've gone through the series, and as I've gone through the study, I can see that actually Matthew wrote it with intention. Matthew wrote us to remind us of the history that has come before Jesus, of the reason why Jesus actually came to earth. Because this is the most incredible introduction to the birth of Jesus. 
It's a reminder of the history that has come on the earth. It's a reminder of God fulfilling promises that he made to people years and years ago. It's a reminder of our need for the grace of God. It's a reminder of the presence of God throughout history and his consistency in that. And it shows us that God has actually been planning the birth of Jesus since the time that Adam and Eve were sinned in the Garden of Eden. It shows us that actually Jesus didn't just come because God decided it so, but actually God wove this entire story together in an incredible wisdom, and Jesus was born out of that. And it showed that God had a plan B. God had a backup to restore his relationship with mankind. And it shows that right throughout history, and that's what Matthew's reminding us of. He's not just saying, hey, Jesus was born. He's saying, remember all of this. Remember that actually we were people who were faithful and unfaithful and faithful and unfaithful. And he's saying, remember what what actually God was doing in this. Remember what man was doing and turning their backs against God. And he's saying, because of all of this, this is why Jesus was coming. And this paragraph of names introduces us to the birth of Jesus. It introduces us to the scene that we're so familiar with, the one that I spoke about earlier, the nativity scene, which Grant is going to speak about next week. And Christmas is here. Christmas is around the corner. And we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But I really pray and hope that through this series, that actually as we read over this and we are reminded of this morning and are reminded of the stories of these lives of men who lived before us, who were Jesus' genealogy, that actually we would recognize that Christmas Day is not just Jesus' birthday. But actually Christmas Day is the day that God became flesh on earth. That Christmas Day is the day that God brought into fruition the plan that he'd been planning for years and years and years. That Christmas Day is the day that God came to earth to begin his redemption story by a baby being born in a manger of a man who is destined to die for our sins because God's grace is reflected right throughout that story. Because Christmas Day is not just remembering the day of Jesus' birth, But actually it's the day when God's incredible redemption plan started. Please won't you stand with me. I'm just going to pray and wrap up this morning. Lord, we thank you for your incredible stories of grace throughout history, Jesus. God, we thank you that you've been planning your redemption story since the beginning of time. We thank you that as we read these random lists of names, that you would unpack to us the truths and the stories surrounding each name. That we would understand that you are a God who is consistent. That we we would understand that you are the God who is full of grace. God, I pray that you would remind us of who we are. And who we are as people, that sometimes we can be fickle with you. And I pray, God, that you would remind us of how incredibly graceful and gracious you are to us. That actually you're a God who is consistently there, that you're a God who is waiting for us. No matter if we forget the incredible things that you've done in our lives and how you've intervened. And when we turn our back on you, God, you are still there with us. I really pray, Jesus, that you would remind us of those things. God, I pray that you would highlight our need for you, just like King Jehoshaphat, when he cried out to you in a hopeless situation, that you would remind us of our need for you and your grace. God, I pray that we would step out in faith, just like Jehoshaphat did, because we know that you are a God who can come in the most incredible way. Lord, I pray that these stories would remind us of your incredible plan for redemption. 
that since Adam and Eve's sin separating you and, you and us in the Garden of Eden, that actually you've been planning your redemption story right up until this time because you wanted to send your son to die on a cross for us so that we can be reconciled back to you. I pray that you would remind us of that story, Lord. I pray that you would remind us of your incredible grace and our need for you, Jesus. I pray, God, that, you would, that we would actually understand the greatness of the story that goes before us. That we wouldn't just concentrate on the now and our situation. We would look back over time and see of how incredible, gracious God you are. Lord, I thank you that you would send your Son to die for us. That despite all of our history and despite all the history of mankind and our fickleness, that you would send him to die on a cross for us, Jesus. We thank you that you're a God with a plan. And that you're a God who is full of faith. And that you're a God who comes through. Amen. I trust this hasn't just been a history lesson this morning. But I trust that God's been speaking to us and reminding us of his incredible grace throughout all of history. And um, on that note, why don't you join us with some tea and coffee downstairs? Why don't you grab a donut and have an incredible week? And if you're going away from here, Enjoy your time away and uh, we'll see you shortly. Cool. Thank you so much for coming today. Cheers.